I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the saints' communion. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body. I believe in the life everlasting. But what about the days that I don't believe? So we start a new four-week series today that we are simply calling Doubt. Uh, And what we want to do over the next four weeks is curate a series of ideas and thoughts that, that help us I suppose think about how we navigate our faith as Jesus followers. How do we make sense of that? Do we always make sense of that? And I think for me, wrestling with this question of doubt is hopefully something that you agree with me is to be seen as important because we live in a context where there's there's often, I would say broadly, two particular challenges happening towards being a person of faith today. On, on one side, we have... Uh, Well, let me say it like this. I think there's a lot of internal deconstruction going on in Christian faith today. So Christians who have faith are increasingly seeing that the journey of faith is is sort of being dismantled. And you sort of regularly encounter these sort of phrases where, well, what we used to know isn't really what we know anymore. So every time a new book comes out or some new article is published and all of a sudden things are changed and things are different and that previous thing we used to believe, wow, we don't need to believe that anymore. So that is creating a sort of unsettling for us, particularly if we've been journeying with faith for some time, because of the question of, well, what do I actually believe? And perhaps more pertinently, what should I believe? And then on the other side, we have uh, the sense that we also live in a context where there's an ever-increasing publishing market that continually wants to blame religion for anything bad that's happening in the world. Perhaps you've encountered some of that, uh, that sort of kind of rhetoric that's out there in the world today. So anytime anything sort of happens from, from some sort of you know, outbreak of something to some war of some sort to, to some sort of political decision that you don't like, it's religion's fault. And, 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 if it, and, and we imagine this world, uh, you, know, it, you know, this world envisaged by the great God John Lennon, that if there was no religion, everything would just be amazing because the source of all of our problems comes from there. And as a result of this, we, we detect this rhetoric in the world, which is basically to speak pejoratively about anybody who has faith. Anybody who believes in something is probably backward, more than likely racist, and a whole host of other isms that we would attach to faith. But fundamentally, the problem with people who have faith, from this perspective, is that they're stupid. And and this is the kind of world that we navigate, that, that on one hand, there's a sort of I'm not quite sure where we often feel we stand as Christians within the church, but then it's becoming increasingly clear that our position outside of the church is one of suspicion and one of a sense of, well, I'm not really sure about faith. Essentially, what I'm trying to say is that where we live in the spectrum of faith today in the 21st century is in anxiety-inducing. There's always something to be nervous about, about your faith and, and about how that works. Now, and what I don't want to do in this particular series is, is sort of roll off a defense of faith. Um, 
Couple of reasons I don't want to do that. Number one, God's big enough to look after himself. He doesn't need my help. When God does need my help, we've really hit a sorry state of affairs. Like, you know, like things are rock bottom. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, you're like, yeah, you're not going to bring in a Scottish guy to help God. Like, oh my goodness, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> sorry, my own, my own self-deprecating racism there and I lost my train of thought. Hold on. <laughs> let, let me get it back. We have, I, I, don't want, I don't want to simply defend God. I also don't want to kind of roll out some sort of defense of why we should believe, right? We're all here, okay? So at some level, uh, all of us think there's something worth exploring in this journey. Rather, what I want to do is think about that subtle nervousness that hangs around in many of us, particularly in our modern context, this nervousness that we carry about faith that we call doubt, and this is important to me uh, because somewhere in the history of the church, the idea arrived that doubt was the opposite of faith. And therefore, doubt is something a Christian should never, ever have. And this sort of is a problem for many of us because doubt, for many of us as Christians, is the one thing we can guarantee we'll always have. Actually, and we hear people talk about doubt sometimes, or we hear people talk about faith perhaps, and we find that it's often expressed and discussed in terms that just seem really far off to us. You know, so like perhaps it's like listening to the pastor, and, and, and some of that's because probably over the years, pastors have kind of put ourselves on pedestals, but then there's also been a, a case that perhaps sometimes we've expected our pastors to be on pedestals. So essentially, or you know, and pastors or missionaries or anyone who's a kind of professional Christian, you know, people who are paid not to have any doubts. And, um, and what happens is we look at these sort of people and we say, well, they seem to have all of their faith together. And then we look at ourselves and go, but I'm just a kind of mess of things I'm not really sure about. And the only thing we know for certain is that if you're not really sure about something, don't tell anyone in church. Because all of a sudden the fire exit opens and you are just ejected out into the playground and never to be welcomed back again. And in one sense we say that humorously, but actually some of us have journeyed this journey where an uncertainty over our faith becomes quite excluding for us. So there's a lot to explore in a series like this, but I want to begin in a really simple place this morning and just set out a premise that I think, I think is essential if we're going to teach about doubt for a few weeks. And therefore, to do that, we're going to begin, as is our habit this teaching year, in Mark's Gospel. I want to take a story in Mark's gospel that happens to Jesus as part of his ministry, but kind of engage with the story as something of a metaphor for this premise that I want to talk to about doubt this morning. The story starts in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 24. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. So here's the sort of setup of the story. Now this is Mark chapter 9 verse 14. Um, this story comes after uh, Mark chapter 9 verse 13. Um, so I said we were going to start really simple this morning. And uh, in Mark chapter 9, verse 1 through 13, there's this story. And the story essentially goes like this. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them, uh, I think I've just broke the screen here. Hold on a second. There we go, it's back. Jesus turns to his disciples in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he says, some of you who are with us right now will see the kingdom of God come in power. And then a few days later, he takes them up a hill 
the text tells us. And while they're up this hill, this thing happens which we'll call transfiguration. We'll call it that because that's what the Bible calls it. And and essentially what happens is Jesus, his clothes become dazzling white. He's somehow changed in front of the eyes of these disciples, Peter, James, and John. And then all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appear, these great heroes of the Jewish faith. They appear and they're talking to Jesus. And this is like outrageous. And Peter, Peter weighs in and needs to say something because Peter always needs to say something. And so Peter says, this is awesome. That's in the original Greek. Um, he says, this is awesome. Let's stay here forever. Um, basic rule of thumb, when Peter talks in the New Testament, he's invariably wrong. And sure enough, that's not what he's supposed to do. But what does happen is all of a sudden we hear God's voice speak into the situation. And God's voice speaks in and says, this Jesus is my son and you should do what he says. So they have this immense transcendent moment. Like Jesus has changed. Like heroes of their, of their religion are there with them. God is speaking. And we go from this transcendent moment. Where now we see Jesus coming back down the hill. What are you arguing about, he says to this crowd. A man in the crowd answers, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it sees him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. So from this transcendent moment up the hill of just amazing moment with Jesus, all of a sudden, we end up in this imminent moment of Jesus with these disciples and this father and his boy. It's kind of like the cabin depressurizes in your plane. Like all of a sudden, please return your seats and tray tables to an upright position and assume the brace position that you read about properly in your magazine. It's like Jesus was in this immense moment and all of a sudden now we're coming into a crash land. Like Elijah was there and Moses was there and God was speaking and Jesus' clothes were shining and now we have the disciples. Yeah, you know what, Jesus, while you're away, we really couldn't figure things out here. Uh, nothing really went very well. And, uh, and you see Jesus' response, right? Jesus responds, you unbelieving generation. He replies, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. You know when we talk about Jesus as this like eternally patient person? <laughs> like Mark chapter nine, Jesus is like, seriously guys? Like, like, literally, you can't do anything without me. And he kind of crashes down to earth with a bump. You ever feel like life goes like that sometimes? You know, have you ever had a moment where you feel like, and maybe transcendent is the word for it, a moment where you just feel like it's easy to either be in Jesus' presence or, or have your faith or, or trust God. Now, these transcendent moments are rare. They're not common. They're not the sort of thing that happens every single day. But maybe you've had a moment or you've had a period of your life where your faith just made sense to you and it was easy and if you think back how often it's in those moments, maybe it's a great church service that you have one day you come and the worship is just awesome, the teaching is average, but for whatever reason it connects with you on that particular Sunday. And that was another self-deprecating joke. Uh, the, <laughs> and you're there and you're in this moment and it's beautiful and then the next day something happens and all of a sudden it's so hard to believe again or maybe it was a, a nature walk that you went on that just connects you with God or maybe it was a book you read or, or it could be many things but many of us will relate to those moments in our faith where it feels like God's growing us and then all of a sudden crash. It's all kind of falling apart around us. 
And here we have Jesus in one of these moments. Jesus in one of these scenes. So he says, bring the boy to me. And so they brought him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around and foamed at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? You feel the sense of irony in this story. I always want to point out the kind of way the gospel writers tell the story. So the boy's brought over, this spirit takes over, he's on the ground, he's rolling around, he's foaming at the mouth, and Jesus is like having this conversation with the boy's dad. So, you know, how, how long has he been like this? Like, like, it just feels a little abstract. Like, what's going on over here? And let's just have this conversation here. Now, the spirit that this boy had, to many readers, when they first read this story, it kind of sounds initially like, is this boy struggling with some sort of epilepsy or, or some sort of condition like that? But now we see something. We see that actually some reaction is happening in this boy that tells us something other is going on here. There's something evil about this. There's something dark going on here. Because as this boy is brought into the presence of Jesus, we see this reaction. And I want to be cautious to say things about this because we kind of seem to get nervous about this sort of conversation in contemporary life. But there's a lot of chats about sort of demons and spiritual things and, and evil that go on in the church nowadays. And oftentimes, and I see this across the kind of the church worldwide, oftentimes these conversations have little by way of biblical foundation. And now there's this, and there's an element of which of being absolutely ignorant to the idea that there might be things spiritual going on. That's probably a bad thing. But there's also a sense that an obsession with spiritual things going on is also a bad thing. And I don't think you can build a whole theory from this one passage, but I just simply want to say this about this passage, that if the thing you're dealing with doesn't respond like this in the presence of Jesus, it probably isn't a demon. And there are certain wings of the church where we kind of want to see demons in everything, and we kind of want to see demons constantly working around Christians, and we kind of get a little obsessed about it. And one of the things that's often missing in those type of conversations is that the Bible constantly shows us one consistent thing, that evil doesn't like being in the presence of Jesus. Evil doesn't like hanging around in that sort of space. And therefore, if we as followers of Jesus are people who have Jesus, then we should expect a little more than sometimes the way that the kind of literature out there suggests that. But that's enough kind of controversial stuff for one morning, so I'm just going to kind of sidestep that and just keep moving on. From childhood, the father answers to Jesus' question. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. If you can. Just take a moment and consider the psychological location of this man. He has watched this evil, otherly force attempt to destroy his beloved child for his whole life. And he finally hears that Jesus is around and he brings his son to Jesus only to discover that Jesus has gone on a hike and he's left with the disciples and not even the good disciples like the ones whose names we can never remember. You know, Peter, James, John, yet they also went in the hike with Jesus. Who are you left with, Bartholomew? 
Who's that? And, you know, and Andrew, like, you know, like, so, so the, the key, everybody's gone, and you turn up, and this is your moment, and Jesus isn't there, and they can't do anything. And life appears like it's just beginning to continue as always. The disciples can't help. And so this man says, if you can do anything. Have you ever found yourself in that place of prayer? Like, if there's anything you can do? The great Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky famously said that when he talked about his own faith, he wasn't talking about it as a hugely confident person, but rather Dostoevsky said, my Hosanna is born of a furnace of doubt. Literally, his cry to God for salvation, because Hosanna literally means save us. Dostoevsky's cry to God for salvation is actually a whimpered if if you can do anything about this, Jesus. To which Jesus replies, well, everything's possible if you have faith. Like anything's possible for the person who believes. Which is a terrifying answer if you think about it. Because if anything's possible for the person who believes, what does that say about me? because I don't feel like I live in a world where everything's possible. I don't feel like my experience of of my journey of following Jesus has been one where everything's possible. So does that speak to the fact that maybe I just don't believe? And I think this passage is often read in that particular way, but there's a question that I think we wanna wrestle through, perhaps for our whole lives, but definitely in this series, is that this passage is terrifying if you understand faith in that particular way. But it's worth your reflection, it's worth something to think about perhaps on your way home or around dinner this afternoon to say, what does Jesus actually mean here? What is Jesus getting at? What does he mean when he says it's possible if you have faith? Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help my unbelief. That, that may be the most honest confession in the whole Bible. Like it's really brutal if you just spend a time thinking about that. Face to face with Jesus, face to face with God in flesh, with the God who has come down and lived and breathed and moved amongst us. A God who says that if you believe, anything can happen. This man, this father, unpacks the paradox that most of us live with throughout our whole lives. Because he looks Jesus in the eye and says, I believe and I'm full of doubt. I believe and I doubt. It strikes me that sometimes the word belief actually helps us live in that paradox. Have you noticed how we use the word belief differently? Like sometimes somebody uses the words belief and it means like, well, I know this and I'm so absolutely certain of it that I, I believe it. You ever hear, you hear people talk about that like, you know, in, in real sense of certainty. But then there's another way to use the word belief. Like, you know, you ask someone, so you'll be back by 10, right? And they say, I believe so. You kind of know that means they're not really sure. And we kind of bounce this word around actually in our vocabularies that sometimes it means certainty and sometimes it doesn't mean certainty. And I wonder if that kind of speaks to something of the tension that we live in. I believe, but help my unbelief. 
And this narrative of Jesus, I think, helps us because it brings us face to face, like the Father, with the question that Christians are often asked in the world today. The question being, well, you don't, you don't really believe that, do you? Have you ever found yourself at some point in your journey where the question of faith comes up, that there's sort of this assumption that, well, yeah, but no, no, like, no like intelligent person actually thinks that way, do they? I find myself regularly in conversation. I seem to spend a lot of my time around people who aren't followers of Jesus. And um, uh, it amazes me how often I find myself talking to people and somehow I'm meeting someone new and the conversation has kind of started. And they, they seem to, I, I don't know if it's something about me, but people start telling me why religion is stupid. Right? And I always then find myself caught in this, kind of, you know, and in my Britishness is always awkward in social situations anyway, right? It's like, how long before I interrupt this person to tell them, well, I am actually a pastor. And, uh, and so probably you're not going to get the agreement from me uh, that, you're, that you're looking for. And, and, it's sort of, and to the extent that some of my friends actually, we laugh at how often this happens around a barbecue or something like that, that all of a sudden, oh, yep, there you go. David's got in that conversation again. And one of my buddies, he'll just turn up and go, you know, he's a pastor, right? <laughs> and uh, it kind of helps me with the social awkwardness. But you feel this sense from people often, but yeah, but you don't, you, know, you don't really believe this, do you? You don't really believe that this story actually happened. You don't really believe in God, do you? You, you don't, like, because, well, you can't really prove it, can you? And this is an aspect of our of an increasingly secular society where everything that we know is distilled down into what is essentially a rationalist question. Can you prove it? Now, we could talk endlessly about why there are serious philosophical problems with assuming that any question can be assessed in that scientific manner. It seems to be that we have decided at some point in Western history, and, it, and, and there's ways to track this, and it's another teaching we could do perhaps at another time, but essentially we've agreed that within sort of modernity we'll assess everything scientifically. We'll assess everything on its ability to be proved. But the truth is, most of us know that's not how life works. It's just it feels like that's how life is supposed to work. I was thinking the other day there about personality tests. It seems like we have a kind of culture of personality tests these days. Everywhere you go, somebody's giving you another personality test. You know, you turn up at work, here's this new personality test. And you notice how scientific they look. You click these questions and this answer will come up and you will be defined. Or maybe you're the type of person that, you know, for some kind of weird sadistic reason, you do those ones on the internet at home. Like, is Netflix not good enough for you? And, uh, you know, and, and so, so you do these personality tests and, and they look and sound really scientific and you talk to one another in such a particular way that you categorize yourself and you don't share names anymore. You just share sequences of letters and you know who a person is based on that. And, and it's, it's fascinating how from the high end of our business world right down to kind of our social world, we're constantly doing these personality tests. And I find myself thinking, like, what even is personality? Like, how do you scientifically prove that? How do you rationally make sense of that? And here we are in a world that's constantly laughing at us for believing in something unseen. But there's so many areas in our world that you can't scientifically prove, but we take them all really seriously. However, despite this, our culture often, when we start to talk about the transcendent, when we start to talk about something beyond the mystery or the unknown, we reject it in favor of what's certain, of what's imminent because we say that belief in something beyond the imminent is unbelievable. Now, the impact of this on us 
is to create what the Canadian uh, philosopher Charles Taylor calls the fragilization of our beliefs. Another Canadian, James Smith, explains that term like this. In the face of different opinions, where people who lead normal lives do not share my faith and perhaps believe something very different, my own faith commitment becomes fragile, put into question, dubitable. Quite literally, that means to be open to doubt. Now think about that for a second. You can become so enculturated by your environment that how you perceive the world is affected and adjusted by the environment you find yourself in. So if you find yourself constantly in an environment where people think that faith is stupid, what the philosophers are telling us is eventually you will find that your own faith will become more and more fragile because of that environment you find yourself in. Think about the father, he walks up to Jesus and he doesn't walk up full of faith because he's seen a lifetime of hurt with his son. He's watched the disciples fail. So what we get is fragile questions, right? We get if you can do anything. Is my own belief fragile? Why might it be? If I feel like my faith isn't strong, there are many psychological reasons for that. There's probably many spiritual reasons for that. But do I ever spend time thinking, why might it be that my faith is fragile? Is it got anything to do with the world that I live in? Has it got anything to do with the culture that I live in? And I'm not saying that we should all go live in a Christian cave. That does not sound like fun. Really, it doesn't. <laughs> I'm not saying we should go and live in a Christian cave or in some commune somewhere, but I do think we should ask ourselves questions about our influences. Where are we positioning ourselves? Where are we placing ourselves? And this is not just a question about our kids. We're often very good at thinking about that for our kids, and we should, about thinking about what their influences is. But what are my influences? Where am I positioning myself? If I spend three weekends of the month skiing and one weekend at church, will that be enough to enculturate me properly in what it is that God is trying to do in my life? Or will one hour on Sunday of faith affect all the other days of my week significantly enough? And sometimes I think we expect magic things from our Christianity. We expect magic things from the books that we're reading. And perhaps actually our problem is some of our fragility is coming from the fact we're just not immersing ourselves in contexts that help us grow and have faith. Now, the other thing is that Christianity shifted and adjusted over the last hundred years. And actually, probably more than that, to be honest with you, but just talking in, in broad round figures. Because what's happened over the last few years is a response to our secular culture has been that we have actually become enculturated in our own Christianity. And we've tried to adapt to a rationalist worldview. And what that means is we've tried to make faith appear rational. We've tried to make faith sound like science. So you'll notice this, we become obsessed with Genesis accounts. Because if we can prove what happened in Genesis is true, then that'll prove the whole Bible uh, absolutely right and every atheist an idiot. And that's kind of what you'll see sort of happen oftentimes. And we write tons and tons of books with the word evidence in them uh, because, because those books will really convince people. And we develop arguments that will convince people to follow Jesus. We kind of have this idea that if I can just rationally convince you that this Jesus thing works, you'll start following Jesus. How's that working for us? Worst of all, in that way of thinking, we start to narrow down our definition of faith. So faith starts to get narrower and narrower and essentially just becomes a, a series of statements or a list of things that we think you should believe. Now, being a Christian 
does require us to believe certain things, right? Being a Christian is not like building an IKEA shelf, okay? Where you have a list of parts and you choose the ones that you think are essential because I'm not allowing this manual to tell me how to do my job. And, and, and you put it together and then just hope to any God that would listen that it stays standing upright. That's not how you build Christianity. Christianity isn't pick the bits you want and assemble it yourself. Although we sometimes would like it to be that way. Charles Taylor calls that pre-shrunk religion. We kind of want it to suit us and kind of build it around ourselves. But there is a problem when we adopt a view of faith that just seems to be a list of a series of components or ideas. Is eventually what starts to happen. And perhaps you've seen this in your own life and perhaps you've seen it in the lives of others. That what eventually starts to happen is you start to talk as if believing in the list is what your faith is all about. The problem with this is that then we start to talk about Christians are people who believe all the things in the list and people who are not Christians are people who doubt any part of the list. So we find people talking at some point about their uncertainty about a particular notion or a particular belief and immediately we start saying things, oh, I think they're losing their faith and oh my goodness, they're abandoning Jesus. When actually they might not be, they might just be questioning the particular list that we're talking about. And of course, what happens in that sort of context is the faith then gets set up as the opposite of doubt. So, having briefly mentioned the great Swedish household store, I know you can see that it's now an easy jump to the next great Scandinavian, Scandinavian export, which is Soren Kierkegaard, and I know you all saw that coming. You mentioned Ikea, now you're talking about Kierkegaard. But Kierkegaard, who was this great philosopher and theologian in the 1900s, he would turn around to us at this point and say, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. Faith does not stand in opposition to doubt, but faith stands in opposition to reason. Faith stands in opposition to this rationalist way of thinking about the world. Faith stands in opposition to the notion that things are only true if you can scientifically prove them. Kierkegaard would tell us that faith is a leap, and a leap that brings us in collision with reason. Because he would say, if you could get faith from reason, then you wouldn't need faith. If you could just logically work it out, if there was a way to rationally put all of this together and come up with a resurrected Jesus, then why would you need faith? But faith calls us to step into the absurd. Faith calls us to step into the stuff that isn't provable, that isn't manufacturable in a scientific lab, but that we all know there's more to life than that. Faith calls us to take a risk. See, because for Kierkegaard, there was more to the world than just reason, rationalism, and scientific method. It's not that these things are bad, far from it. They're just not all that there is to the world. And so he counseled that to find Christ, you have to sometimes go up against these ideas, these ideas that are actually often in yourself. You've been raised in a particular way to think in this particular way, and Christ calls you to think differently. And the risk of that is that you might be offended. So he explains it like this. He says, the issue is, will you be offended or will you believe? If you believe, then you push through the possibility of offense and accept Christianity on any terms. For Kierkegaard, faith emerges from the offense to reason, from the offense to rationalism, from the offense to kind of scientific testing. And it emerges from that collision and draws us towards Christ. And Christ himself was quite offensive. 
And Christ himself caused us to take risks and to follow Christ required a leap. And what we often try and do in the contemporary world is narrow Jesus down to say, well, he was just a nice teacher. He was a really good rabbi. But that won't bring around the offense that causes faith to grow. For Kierkegaard, it was the fact that there is more to the world than just what you can prove that holds us into this need to leap in faith towards God. Of course, interestingly as well then, this means that we don't actually ever lose our faith. It's not something that just disappears on us one day. Kierkegaard would say, rather it's something that you push away. You actually make a conscious choice that you can't live with that offense, that you can't live with that risk, that you can't make the leap. And you decide, therefore, that that paradoxical marriage of doubt and faith is too much for you, and you choose instead to live with certainty and control. And I understand that we want certainty and control, the very basic human ideas, but just know that they are the opposite of faith and doubt, both of which are really, really uncertain in various times. And it strikes me that in this story that we're charting our way through this morning, this father has remarkable surrender of control. He, he's, he's not in charge of what's going on, but despite not being in charge of this story, despite, despite not being certain of this story, he is full of faith and also full of doubt. Notice he's not indifferent. It's not that he's like, oh, you know, who cares? Some days I believe, some days I don't believe. Like this is his son he's dealing with. Like he's dealing with something that's absolutely, he's fully invested to it. But he's not certain. He doesn't have certainty. He doesn't have assurance. He definitely has no control. He just has faith and doubt in apparently equal measure. Is it possible to be fully invested in Jesus and equally doubting and trusting at the same time. And then it strikes me that there's something quite significant going on in this story. And this is really the only thing that I want to say today. It just took us a real long time to get there. A man says to Jesus, I believe and I don't believe. Like in its original text in the Greek, it literally works that way. I believe, help that I don't believe. I believe, I have doubt. I trust, I have doubt. I have faith, I don't have faith. And just notice this. Jesus is okay with that. Like I feel like we should just smash pause and rest in that for a moment. I believe, I don't believe. Like, I didn't tell you how the story ended, but you've probably read enough Bible to know how the story ended. Jesus heard the man use the word doubt, stepped back, fire fell from heaven, burned up his unbelieving soul, and Jesus carried on the way to find the faithful. You don't need to read the end of the story. You know the boy gets healed. You know that Jesus is going to do something. And so here we have a story in Scripture of a man coming to Jesus and going, I don't really believe I do a bit, but not all the time. I'm not really sure. I'm uncertain. There's bits of me I believe. There's bits of me I don't believe. And Jesus is okay with all of that. So maybe we read Mark 9 and realize that our doubts are not a reason to give up on Jesus. Because he's not using them as an excuse to give up on us. I don't really know if I can do this faith thing anymore because I'm not fully certain. Well, join the queue. 
because there's tons of us aren't fully certain because doubt is around in so many of us, but you can stand in front of Jesus and you can say, I do doubt. And he still loves you and he still helps you and he still calls you on this journey. But here's a question, just as a thought exercise. What if it is true? If it is true, then that means when you pray, you're not just praying in an empty room. You're not just asking a clever rabbi if he knows a Bible trick that will help your son. It means that there's actually someone out there. It means that there's actually someone out there who's coming to you. It means there's actually someone out there who's drawing you in to himself. You see, because if this is actually true, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not as simple as, well, some people believe this and some people believe that. Because the Bible seems to call us to this realization that you may live in doubt and you may live in faith, but Jesus is really there and he's coming to you. Jesus and his gospel can find us in the worst moments of our life. And in those moments, we often find the worst of our doubts. We often find the most difficult things of our lives. And the best we can hope to pray in those particular moments might actually just be, if you can help me. It's an honest prayer, but it's not the most faith-filled prayer. It's got a lot of doubt in there. And this story calls us to realize that our doubt doesn't drive Jesus away. It doesn't push us away from faith. It shouldn't push us away from faith. But actually, it can draw us face to face with Jesus. Our doubt can actually call us into the place that God wants us to be. Our doubt can be the thing that brings us into his presence. Michael Gerson, who's a columnist of the Washington Post, uh, wrote an article just recently in which he writes this article from his hospital bed and he says these beautiful words. He says, faith, thankfully, does not preclude doubt. It consists instead of staking your life on the rumor of grace. There is this difference for a Christian believer. At the end of all of our striving and longing, we find not a force, but a face. All language about God is metaphorical, but the metaphor became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, because actually when we have this conversation, we're not talking about an idea. We're not actually talking about a religion. We're not even really talking about a faith. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about a God who became flesh and moved amongst us. And so somewhere in this kind of journey of faith and doubt, we also realize there's a journey being made towards us by this Jesus, who isn't just an idea, but he actually has a face. And that brings me to my prayer for you then this morning. May you live in the risk, in the doubt, in the absurdity, in the offense, because there is a rumor of grace. May you live in that rumor, ignoring the desire to prove the why, because God has answered us with a who. And when faced with all that life offers you, may you also pray, I believe, help my unbelief. And may God's grace and peace be with you. Amen and amen.